Open your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 John. We're continuing in our series in the book of 1 John. The series is titled Love One Another. We're going to look at the book of 1 John, chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. Because of my art major, I don't know if you all knew this, but I was an art major in college. But because of my art major, my eyes were trained to see things I previously overlooked. The depth, the color, the form of an object just came alive to me. And because of my training, it still does. So the Apostle John here, he sets love and hate in bold contrast. And it's his way of bringing to life the message of love. And by describing what love isn't and contrasting that with what love is and making sure that we know what love produces, John brings out the depth and the color and the form of the love we're called to walk in. And that's my prayer, is that we would see the depth and the color and the form of the love of God, of what we're called to walk in. So so let's pray that now. Lord, would you help us as we engage your holy word? Would you help us to see the depth, the color, the form of the love you've called us to walk in. Would you help us, Lord, where we've maybe previously overlooked something about your love to see it in a fresh way today or maybe for the first time? Lord, we're trusting you by your spirit to do these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's read 1 John chapter 3, verse, starting in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, And love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. We're going to look at three things this morning. One, what love isn't. Two, what love is. And three, what love produces. First, what love isn't. John mentions the message that you have heard from the beginning. And he defines the message this way, that you should walk in love, that you should love one another. 
Well, a couple of weeks ago, I described that message as the apostolic preaching about Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. The message about Jesus, the gospel, the good news about Jesus is a message of love. It's a message of God's love for humanity caught in rebellion and sin. It's a message about God's resolve to do something about our brokenness. It's a message of love. That message and this message of loving one another, they go hand in hand. They're one and the same. We love because he first loved us. And so our love for others is an overflow. It's a direct result of his love for us. It's all rooted in the apostolic preaching of Jesus, the message about Jesus. And so John is coming back to the central theme of his letter, love one another. And he uses this ancient story about Cain found in Genesis 4 to illustrate what love isn't. Cain is an example of someone that we should not be like. And this story is filled with warning against the power of envy and bitterness and anger and hatred. It's warning against sin. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Cain is Adam and Eve's firstborn saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where's your brother, Abel? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. John says, don't be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Of the evil one? John is is taking his cues from Jesus who spoke this same way in John chapter 8 towards his accusers. Trevor spoke last week about family resemblance. This is the same idea. Cain is behaving like the liar, the murderer. That's where he's taking his cues. The reason Cain did what he did Well, his actions were evil and Abel's were righteous before God. And this really messed with Cain. It filled his heart with jealousy. Cain brought nothing special before God. Abel brought the very best. 
Here's Abel, the younger brother, showing his older brother up, but he couldn't handle it. Envy, jealousy fills his heart. And it snowballs into hatred, which manifests itself in murder. And John wants this ancient story to stick. It's an illustration. Do not be like Cain, which means you could end up like Cain. So there's warning here. Now, I don't think that the Apostle John is concerned that the churches to whom he's writing will physically murder each other. But hatred, now, that took the form of jealousy for Cain. And we underestimate the power of jealousy and envy and resentment and anger. We do. It divides and it destroys. It produces heartache and it pushes people away. And often it it causes us to recast people as the villain. You know what I'm talking about? That bitterness, that resentment. We begin to recast other people as the villain. This can happen on a number of fronts. We can do this to public figures. We can do this to neighbors. We can do this to family members who have hurt us, who have done us wrong. We recast them as the villain. And when we do that, we justify our feelings and our behavior towards them. It's dangerous. John's warning us. And then he transitions. John transitions. And he talks about how Abel walked in righteousness and was hated for doing it. So so don't be shocked. He, He gets this, don't be shocked when the world hates you. Abel was hated for walking in righteousness. So you don't be shocked when the world, when this world system that is set in opposition to God hates you. Your sacrificial worship, your sincere devotion to the Lord will irritate and instigate others in a way that will lead them to all kinds of hateful actions against you. So don't be shocked when that happens. It's been happening since Genesis 4. John is not coming up with anything new. He's just echoing the words of Christ. Verse 14, we know that we're alive or we've passed from death to life because we love the brothers. Now, brothers, this is family language. And John is saying, start with the family of God and go out from there. Whoever does not love abides in death. This word abide, we've heard about abiding in in good things, abiding even in in, in God, that fellowship, that communion, that dwelling and remaining in him. And now John says, whoever does not love actually dwells or remains in death. This is serious. And then in verse 15, uh, he breaks it down and gets to the heart of the issue. If you hate your brother, then you're a murderer. And no murderer has eternal life. And John is not exaggerating. He's not exaggerating. Hate is the root of murder. He's only saying what Jesus has already said. Look with me in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, this is what you should do. And you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Church, a murderer, physical murder, can be forgiven. It will be forgiven. When you go, if you've murdered and you, you repent, you will find life in Christ like anyone else. But a person who holds on to hate as if it is their right will not find life. Love is not whatever we want it to be. It is not whatever our culture defines it to be. Walking in love requires something of us. And it requires knowing what love is truly. So, so what is it? What is love? And, and that's where John goes next. Go back to 1 John chapter 3. He says, by this, in verse 16, we know love. That he, that the who, that Jesus laid down his life for us. This is how we know love. By looking to Christ and his sacrificial death on our behalf. And, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is how we know what love is. You know, last week I wasn't here. Valerie and Silas and I were in Portland, Maine, visiting my grandmother. She, she's 98 years old. The last time I had seen her was when I officiated my grandfather's funeral. And, and so it was uh, it just been a long time. Missed her. And we were able to fly up there uh, together and surprise her. She didn't know we were going we to be there. Um, and it was so sweet just to spend time with her, uh, buy her pajamas, buy her food, really give her whatever she wants. She's 98. And, and, and so... There we were, but we also had some, some time alone, um, just Val and I and Silas. It's a pretty good third wheel. Uh, but we, we, were walk, we, were, we had a lot of time just to kind of go to parks and walk in downtown Portland. And one evening, Friday evening, we're walking in downtown Portland, and we happened upon uh, some live music. It was so fun. Upright bass, and there was a horn. It was just so fun. And uh, then there was a, a guy there who uh, proceeded to tell me uh, that I needed to shake my hips as I was listening to this music, and then he went on to show me how I should shake my hips. Um, but anyway, the, when he, he eventually I was asking me a lot more questions about myself, he asked me what I did, I think he thought I was military, he told me my hair looked like I was military, I'm like, okay, I'm a pastor, he's like, oh, wow, okay, um, I grew up Unitarian, and I, I learned about all the religions, and from Buddhism to Islam to Judaism, they all are the same. Their message is the same. Love one another. Now, I, I don't believe that. That's a relativistic approach. He left out Jesus, and so I said, do you know what Jesus said? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it was too loud. It wasn't the time or the place, but the conversation, it broke my heart in many ways, but it also reminded me of the importance of defining what love really is. And what it actually means to love one another. And that's where John goes. John says, by this we know love. By what? By the example of Christ. Cain was a model or an example of hatred. Jesus is the model or an example of love. 
Love and hatred are contrasted here, and they're held up before us for our good. The opposite of murder is laying down your life in order to save the life of someone else, and that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. He gave up his life for you and me, for sinners. Greatest expression of God's love. The cross exemplifies humility and forbearance. It exemplifies love on the highest level. And John is saying, now, in view of that great love for us, we're to lay down our lives in some very practical ways. Yes, for our neighbor and family and uh, co-worker, but, but let's start right here with our brother and sister in Christ. Well, look what he says in verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, this is family of God language, you see your brother in need, yet does, uh, I'm sorry, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? How? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Okay. You see where he's going with this? You see it? You might not need to lay down your life physically for your faith, but you definitely, you might, but you definitely need to lay down uh, those things in your life that might have value, uh, the things that you could share with others who are in need. You definitely are called to meet the practical needs of your brother and sister in Christ. And listen, we're not coming up with our own religion here. We're not fabricating a version of Christianity that can be morphed into uh, our own lifestyle or fit into our lifestyle. That's dangerous and that's easy to do. We can come up with an idea of God that kind of fits our lifestyle. But instead, we, we come to see and to know and experience the love of God in Christ and in his life and death. And then that love begins to morph or transform us so much so that we begin to lay down our lives for our brothers. It just makes sense. And we're not just to admire his love from a distance and think, oh, bravo, Jesus, great job. Yes, what a love. Thank you for, no, it, it, go, go further. Go further than that. We admire it, yes, but we're also to follow his example and live as a copy, as a reflection of that self-giving, sacrificial love, especially towards our brother and sister in Christ. So there are countless ways that you can express this sacrificial love. Countless. These verses are challenging us to surrender what has value in our own life to meet the needs of others. You know, it is easy to love a nameless group of people. It's harder to love one person, especially if that person is difficult or needy, or exasperating. I know there's no one in this room like that. Or joining us online. Nobody. (laughs) C.S. Lewis, he writes, loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. The Apostle John talks about not closing your heart against this individual in need. Or if you're lacking pity. Literally, the idea here is that you're shutting up, he says, your entrails. Uh, that's the, the Greeks believed that the location of a person's emotion was like their innards, <laughs> their, 
their gut, their stomach, their entrails. It's just kind of gross. But don't close your heart, your insides to this person. Give them your all. Give them your all is what he's saying. You can say you love somebody. Show it. Prove it. Um, Valerie and I have been married 21 years, but we've known each other since high school. And I remember when, where I was when I first told her that I loved her. Uh, I was in my garage working out, lifting weights. You know I was. <laughs> you knew I lifted weights. It was obvious. <laughs> A long time ago. So I was in the garage lifting weights and, and just... Something came over me in conversation with her on the phone, and I had to tell her that I loved her. Guys, I do not recommend telling whoever you're dating that you love them for the first time over the phone. Don't do that. That's what I did, though. And then she, it got real awkward, real silent, and then she changed the subject. Good for her. Good for her. I, I, it took me a long time to, um, to say I, I loved her after that. Uh, listen, this is an embarrassing story, um, and I'm sharing it with you. Please don't tell anyone else. Uh, but no, this, the, the reality of it is this. I, I, I did not know what love really was and what it meant to love her. I hardly knew her. I just, there were some feelings brewing. You know what I'm talking about. And I just had to tell her. Uh, but it, love is so much more than that. And I, I want you to think of expressions of love that someone has demonstrated towards you and when you think about expressions of love that matter to you and produce something in you, it's rarely words that you think of. It's usually action. And those actions produce something. And, and that's where this is going. John has told us what love isn't by giving us the illustration of Cain. And he's then shown us what love is by giving us the illustration of Jesus and, and his extravagant love. And then he, he continues on now to show us what love produces. And we cannot forget the context of this letter. There were pretenders and deceivers that had gone out from them, and they had denied Jesus as the anointed one, as the Messiah, and they had claimed to have some sort of knowledge um, that everyone else needed. And I imagine some in the church were questioning their faith as a result. Some maybe had gone into a, a, what we could call a crisis of faith because of this. I mean, imagine if people had... People go out from us and they say, you don't, you don't need to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ anymore. Actually, this is what you need. You're like, what, wait, do they have something more that I need? And what, what, what is it producing in this community? Questions. Doubt. Fear. And so John begins to address this. Have you ever been there? Has a leader ever let you down? We've all had those experiences. You're shaking a community up. Have you yourself ever gone through something and you think, man, I'm just the biggest failure. I don't belong here. And just feeling of condemnation just begins to plague your thoughts and you wonder, man, do I truly belong here? And this wrestling match usually happens in our hearts. And that's where John goes. This is about our conscience. And it's a common battle among all Christians. Some are more prone to these feelings of condemnation. Some are given to depression and introspection, and so it hits them more frequently. For others, it might be due to a specific event, like a leader just going astray, one who embraced Jesus, and now he's off the rails, and you're like, what? 
For others, it's a specific sin you keep giving into. Or maybe for others, it's just circumstances are just hitting you. You feel condemned. How do you battle doubt? How do you battle feelings of condemnation? What do you do when your heart condemns you? That's where John is going. John includes himself in the next verses, verses 19 through 21. He includes himself. We can know we are of the truth and we can reassure our hearts before God. We can have confidence before God. Really? I mean, don't you want confidence before God? Yes. And he goes in verse 20, he says this, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Okay, I like that. I like that God is greater than my heart because when my heart condemns me, it's good to know that God is greater than that condemning heart. Really good. What John is essentially getting at is, I believe, that we're to look back at God's powerful work in our life. What his love has produced in us, it's greater now. His love has produced love for others. So look at that and find real assurance. But also look to God's verdict over your life. When you fail, when you sin, when you mess up, because God's love is greater than death. God's love is greater than fear and doubt and failure in sin. So look to that love and look to what he says about you. God's opinion and his approval needs to matter most. And so we have to confront our, our doubt and our condemnation. We have to confront ourselves with what is true about God and his work in our lives. I'm telling you, this is like for our lives. This is what living out our faith looks like. Confronting condemnation with the truth of who God is and his work in our life. How many times have I had to do that in my own life? Countless. Can't even tell you how many times. Where feelings of despair and condemnation were just overwhelming and crippling. You know, conviction is good. Draws you near to God. You know, okay, Lord, I'm going to repent of this. Thank you for convicting me of this sin. I want to make this right. Condemnation, oh man, we just don't even want to lift our, our eyes to the Lord. We feel just, no, how could I even approach you and we just we sheepishly back away and we there's this barrier that goes up between us and god or so it feels a sin-stained conscience is a huge barrier and it has a crippling effect but when that barrier is removed instead of shame there's boldness and that's where john's going are you forgiven then listen you can have confidence access And what does this produce? What does forgiveness and access and assurance and confidence produce? Verse uh, 21, he says, if our heart does not condemn us, oh, if our heart doesn't condemn us, then we can have confidence. What does that confidence look like? Then we can boldly approach God. We can have confidence in God's provision. We can have confidence in prayer. We can speak up and make our requests known. Why does he go here? This is about relationship. This is about dwelling and abiding in God. I want you to think of a father-child relationship where there's this atmosphere of love and, and obedience and it's completely natural for a child to ask their father for things in that environment. And that's the environment that we can experience with God. So as we obey God and we strive to please him imperfectly, 
As our desire for his will to be done in our life grows and grows and grows, it's totally natural then for us to stretch out our hands and ask for his provision and receive all that he has for us. That's what his love produces. The confidence to speak up before a holy God. To abide, to receive. It also produces an understanding of God's presence. But before we get there, he directs us to a command. Obeying his command. And it's a singular command expressed in two ways. Faith and love. Faith or belief in the name of Jesus Christ. This is a decisive act. If you're here today and you've not made this decisive act, well, I've been praying for you and many have been praying for you that you would make this decisive act, that you would put your faith, your, your, your confidence and trust in the work of Jesus done for you, in the name of Jesus, who he is, the name that refers to just the, his person, his character. That's a decisive act. And then second, love, well, that's loving one another is a continuous, ongoing lifestyle we're invited into. But there are two sides to the same coin. It's one commandment. Believe and love one another. Believe in the name of Jesus Christ and love one another. Believe in Jesus Christ and love one another. As we walk in that, we can have confidence in God's presence. Confidence in God's presence. That's where he goes, finally, in verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. This is the first time mutual abiding is mentioned. His spirit, God's spirit, is how we experience this deep and abiding presence of God. His spirit is given to us when we put our faith and trust in Jesus. Have you confessed your sin before God? Have you confessed your need for Jesus as Savior? Have you been empowered to walk out your faith in any capacity? Have you walked in obedience or love? Then this is the Spirit's abiding work in you, and you should rejoice. You should have confidence. John is writing this to warn, for sure, but he's writing it so that those who, to whom he's writing will walk away with this assurance, a clarity. I want the same for you. So by describing, by describing what love isn't and contrasting it with what love is, by laying out what love produces, what does the Apostle John do? He puts a love in front of us in all of its depth and color and form, and he says, walk in it. Walk in that love. I want to. I pray we would walk in this love. It's going to change our city, you know. It's going to change our world. It's no small thing. Let's walk in it together. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for our time together in your word. Now, we pray that you would help us to take the warning about Cain, and the jealousy and the envy and the hatred that can rise up in our own hearts Help us to take that seriously. And help us, Lord, to be ever just so moved and humbled by the love of Jesus, by your love 
expressed in Jesus. That it would equip us and empower us to walk in the love that we're called to have for one another. We thank you, Lord, for this mission you've laid out before us. We thank you, Lord, for this love that you've called us to walk in. We thank you, Lord, for the confidence and assurance that we can have to boldly approach you in prayer and to know that you are with us. Oh, what benefits are found in your love. Help us to stand amazed at it, but also to walk in the power of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.